There's a critic in the audience tonight, everyone. Welcome to Minutes to Curtain. I'm Andy Rogers, the executive swashbuckler of the Miscreant Theater Collective, and I am joined as epically lauded. <gasps> now is the winter of our discontent. It's Dylan McDonald. How are now you doing? Now is the winter. Yeah. I thought we were already in that winter. I no. It was the 2020 winter. Well, yeah, but the 2020 winter started like less than a month ago. It's now the 2021 winter, and it's discontenting. I I definitely do not feel contented. <laughs> Nor should you. Though be. I do feel like making some content. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> that was the winter of this content. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, this is so dumb. Yep, so that's why I'm here. So Dylan, uh, again, thank you for joining. We are going to be discussing a lovely play called The Long Christmas Ride Home by Paula Vogel. My little bit of background on this is that this was originally written in 2003, so kind of a, a dated period piece, this one. Yeah, very, very old. <laughs> yep, thank you. Yeah, I don't know why you didn't, why you had to go back to the archives for 03. Ah, I mean, just looking for those pearls that we could uh, pull out of the oyster fields of theater so the oyster fields <laughs> yes uh it's yeah it's the ones that the the beatles wrote that song about um anyway so uh that's, i am the walrus that's that's the one so uh we're gonna go ahead and get a quick recap of what happens in this play um while you're doing that dylan uh i you know new year new me i'm got this new workout routine so i'm gonna i'm gonna bust out 100 push-ups real quick i do it on on my fists not like palms flat i, I do it like a tough guy so right. uh yeah your form looks great i just have to say thank you for for having been doing this for only a couple of days, it looks you know those fists are a little more swollen than I would have hoped. But yeah, yeah, it's hard to get my shirts on. I mean, that's how you get swole. That's absolutely. That's what I've heard. Uh, well, while I'm busting these out, you know, I'll have to stop and take a quick breath or two every now and then. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and tell us what happens in this play? All right, and you have until I finish my push-ups to uh, to give us the recap. All right, I'm looking, for, and you're going to do how many? One hundred. One. You're going to do one. Hundred. One single hundred. Uh, yes, a single hundred. Okay. Let me know when to start. All right, ready? <sighs> Go. Okay, basically a five-person play about a family going to a their grandparents' house on Christmas Day. It starts off with a man and woman, three kids in the back, and they are on the way to the woman's parents' house for Christmas. It's kind of weird because they're just sort of, the man and the woman are just talking about themselves in the third person omnisciently like they're saying what the other person is thinking and feeling and that's sort of how it starts and the kids in the back are all puppets with no voices at this point uh, so it's, it's kind of an interesting construction to start the play continues on and the man and woman start talking about what had happened the day before so this place takes place on christmas afternoon evening and so they start talking about christmas eve where they went to this unitarian church um, that they belong to uh, for a Christmas service, and and a fair amount of weird stuff happens. It's there was a replacement minister, and he just got back from Japan, and he is super excited about Japanese culture and how he can weave that into the Christmas story, um, and that sort of pervades the entire very strange Christmas Eve celebration at this church, which does include one supposedly 
accidental photo of erotica um, from the Japanese side of things. We also uh, get taught about this thing called the this concept of the floating world um, in Yukioi, um, sort of a Japanese concept of a pleasure-seeking world. Hmm. Um, so, so this sort of all happens, kind of confuses the kids, kind of confuses the audience. But then again, that's what we're here for. Uh, and then we snap back into the car. And we're on the way to uh, to mother-in-law and father-in-law's house. You know, grandma and grandpa's house we go. <sighs> yeah, okay. Grandma and grandpa's house we go. Do you think that they'd like to see these guns I got right here? I, I don't think. I think there's only one player in this play who would like to see those guns. Great reference. Thank you. You get extra points for that yes. one. I did not know we were doing points. Well, of course we're doing points. Okay, I didn't want to tell you because then cool. I would lose points. All right. Well, you have more push-ups to do and yes. I have more talking to I've, you. I've got uh, 60 push-ups left and whew, just starting Jeez. to get warm. Oof. Okay. So the family arrives at the at grandmother's house to which we have gone um, and <laughs> everything is sort of nice and, and civil for for a while. Uh, the parents sit around, the, the men folk you know, share share a couple of drinks, chat pleasantly, and the kids open their presents. Um, from their grandparents, the kids receive literal garbage. <laughs> there is a garbage room in the, in the parents' apartment complex or whatever it is, and they have just found like a hat and and some gloves that are. You know, there's a hole in in the hat. The gloves have their fingers cut off. There's a scarf with a weird stain on it. They couldn't get out. And and these are the presents from grandma and grandpa, because they've got this depressionary idea that you got to save and do everything. Um, yeah. Then the kids get their presents from their uh, from their parents, and they get some nicer presents, although not exactly what you would have wanted. Uh, Rebecca gets a diary. Um, which is which is nice. She wants to keep some secrets, but she's worried that her brother and sister will will read out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen gets a soccer ball, uh, which is too bad because he doesn't really like soccer. He'd much rather watch the boys playing soccer. And Clara gets a really really nice bracelet, you know, super thin strand with charms on it, and just like extravagant thing. Great. She she must be the favorite. Obviously. Uh, so everybody yeah. says thank you for their gifts. This is the time when the um, the puppet kids finally start getting voices. They're starting to be voice acted, but they're still played by puppets. Um, and then everybody sits around the dinner table. They're having their dinner, and the men start to argue. They've been drinking. Um, they've been disagreeing on some stuff. Turns out um, the the older, the father-in-law had lent some money to the family that they're still paying back, but there's just this back and forth about the man, the, the man not being great with money or appearing to be more careless with money than his father-in-law would like. Uh, and so they start to get louder and louder and angrier and angrier. And right as this fight hits its apex, um, so does this fight that the kids are having over this bracelet, uh, the obviously most expensive present, until Stephen grabs the bracelet and Claire pulls away, and the bracelet breaks right as the men get their angriest, and everything sort of hushes for a second. And the man sees that Stephen has broken this very expensive bracelet that he bought for his daughter. And he goes to he goes to send the kid out to the car and also goes to kick him like a soccer ball because oh. that's the gift he was supposed to be. And grand, Grandpa's not going to have that. So he says, you're not going to send this boy out in the cold on Christmas Day. You can't treat him like that. Uh, they yell at each other some more. They get into a literal physical fight, which lasts a few seconds, but then it's broken up. He kicks the whole family out of the house, says, you got to go home. They gather up their gifts, and they, they run. They get back into the... Uh, back into the car to take the second half of their long Christmas ride and head on home. Man, I, I feel like with all that aggression and testosterone, if only they had just 
done some push-ups, maybe they could have worked through it. That might have worked, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe CrossFit. Yeah, exactly. And let me tell you about CrossFit. Please you know, do not. Oh, okay. Nobody, uh, literally, nobody wants to hear about CrossFit. Okay. Well, I have yeah. thirty push-ups left, right. so I'm I'm gaining. Okay. So so the family is is all back in the car on their way home, and everybody is super sad. It's very awkward. Um, all the kids are in the back seat, thinking ind- individually that they were somehow responsible for this big blow up, this big fight that happened. Um, and then mom lets out a snarky. You know, what a great Christmas you've given me to the man. And he's, you know, presumably a little drunk, although it's not really referenced. And he says, Jesus Christ, and he goes to hit mom. And right there, the play, everything freezes. And the kids finally step out from being puppets and present themselves in their full adult forms. Um, And so what we get instead of a flashback is some flash forwards to who these kids become. 24, 25 years down the road. Um, the first one we get is Rebecca. She's been out drinking a lot. She comes home to find that she's locked out of her place with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend is find, found out by going through her mail that she's pregnant. So she's mad about that violation of privacy. She's also really drunk and knows she's pregnant. She claims she doesn't want to keep it. Um, he also has found out that she's been cheating on him because he read her diary. Once again, going through her stuff. Uh, So she gets upset about that. They have a back and forth. He, at some point, proposes to her and says, let's keep the baby. I'll raise it as my own. Um, She seems like she might accept it for a second, but quickly pushes that off and says, no, I'm just going to go somewhere else. You know, whatever. Fuck you. And leaves. Uh, But she's too drunk. She can't even find where she parked her car. So she's wandering around town for a while until she just decides to lay down on this bench and presumably could fall asleep and die in the cold. It's Christmas Day. Until a shadowy figure of Stephen saves her at the last moment. We come back to the car. We get a reenactment of the almost slap in the mom's face. And then we learn about Claire's future. Um, And Claire has been following her girlfriend and watching her cheat on her, basically. Again, this all happens on on Christmas night, and she's standing outside this apartment looking up, watching her girlfriend cheat on her with one of her uh, law students' uh, friends. And she does the same thing. She she tries to rationalize for a while and eventually gives up and and wanders down the street, sits on a bench, um, but she doesn't go to fall asleep. She pulls out a gun. She puts the barrel of the gun in her mouth. Uh, and right at the last moment, again, shadowy figure of Steven appears to save her, stop her from from blowing her brains out and to go on with her life. We come back to the car. Steven gets his turn. Steven tells a story about being a, being a young gay man in San Francisco. And a man that he's been living with has locked him out because he's in there fucking another younger man. They shout for a while at the outside of the door. He eventually gives up, goes to a bar to find another man for the night. Uh, and it is it is pretty obvious that he contracts HIV AIDS from that experience. And then he describes sort of quickly describes dying from that and then crossing over to this afterlife, what he thinks of as the floating world. It sort of describes walking around, coming down once a year on Christmas to, to wander around and, and sometimes steal the breath of somebody else to live a little bit. Um, and so we sort of find out that these ghostly images of Stephen have been real and that he's sort of been using his opportunity there to save to save his, his kids. Uh, his Sorry, to save his sisters. Um, at which point we snap back into the car and we see what happened. And it's exactly what you, what you would have thought. Dad hits mom. It's icy and he, it's cold and he loses control of the car and they, they skid off and almost down an embankment into a river. And as they're sitting there precariously on the edge of life and death, mom and dad both 
pray to whatever God they want, to claim that they will be better people and promise to, to do better in the future. But what really seems to save them, is, save them is dad thinking about that next woman that he wants to be with. And that convinces him to sort of slowly creep the car out and, and get back home. Um, and you get a final monologue from Steven about what it means to, to hold your breath and, and let it out and talks about his sister still being alive and having kids. And that's where the play ends. Uh, I just feel like even listening to it, I want to curl up next to a Yule log and throw this on the Hallmark channel. I mean, this this is it's just such a... It's a beautiful story. It is beautiful. I I too like mule logs. We're definitely talking about the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> yeah, and and definitely the Hallmark Channel, my favorite channel. Oh the, yeah. I mean, to well, definitely still exists. I think. Uh, well, then we better look out for another endorsement from them because I'm sure it's coming on. Exactly. Real quick. I think the check is in the mail already. Oh man. I think that what Paula Vogel has done with this play, and I think through this play, is worthy of, I think, a bit of discussion. I mean, this well, is... Well, I would hope the... so. We're doing an entire podcast oh, on God. it. Oh, uh, God. This is one of the first plays that I've seen that has a huge amount of stage directions and suggestions for the performance of this play. I mean, everything from the environments to... Uh, when this play is going to be performed. Very interesting, because I've never really seen a play before that said, do not perform this at Christmas time. Yeah, she specifically says not to do this in December as as just sort of one more way of making the atmosphere sort of make sense, is this is not this is not a Christmas story. You know, as you joked about, this is not a Christmas tale. And it and it almost makes more sense for the what's going on on stage inside the theater to be at odds with the real world. And and that's either there to just make the point that no, you don't tell this at Christmas, or that, you know what, this is this is a story that is out of time. Yeah. I, I mean I think from a production point of view, if you go into a theater in the heat of summer and like they bump up the air conditioning and it's nice and cold, it makes that night feel a lot colder from an experiential point of view. Yeah. But sure. that may have nothing to do with Paul Vogel's original intentions. So yeah, any any other immediate responses to reading this play? One of the things that I like about this play is that after you have read it all, if you go back to look for the themes and sort of the intertwined ideas, they are everywhere. And But it does a really good job of not necessarily giving those to you right away. Like, to me, you realize at the end of the play that this has been Stephen's story all along. That even though it started off with a man and a woman talking, and Stephen, as, as whoever portrays Stephen as an adult, isn't even on stage and doesn't even speak on or off stage until you know, halfway through the, through the first part of, yeah. of this play um, until they actually get to grandmother's house we go. But then you, what you realize is that him seeing that Japanese culture and the ukiyo-e and, and all that kind of stuff is that was what he latched onto and that became who he was mm -hmm. later in life. And that weaves through everybody's story. Even the fact that there are puppets. You mentioned yeah. you mentioned Vogel being very specific about how you should do this, um, and she specifically points out that they should be a lifelike Japanese puppetry style of puppet mm -hmm. because this needs to be the story that Stephen is telling. 
Yes. And the last thing you want to do is to make them too cheery or like too, you know, marionette-ish. You want you want these to feel like a I think she says specifically like what a westerner would think kabuki theater is. Yes. Yes, and and all part of the Bunraku traditions, uh, which it's yeah, fascinating. So, and so a lot of layers research. just in the performance. Absolutely, but I'm glad that you brought brought up the puppets uh, and and Paul Vogel's instructions thereof, because the puppets are a, kind of a controversial element of this play when this has come up in discussion before. It is difficult in a local play reading group to really get the full power of a, a choice of a production that involves puppets. And in previous discussions, the use of the puppets has been questioned, whether or not it adds anything to the performance specifically. I love the idea, first of all, that because this is through Stephen's eyes, this is his recreation with the puppets of the events of that night. However, there is more than just physical manipulation of an inanimate object. The puppetry itself is present in the character actions as well. Uh, for example, you pointed out that uh, mom and dad are speaking for the kids and in many ways controlling them, even their voices, all the way up through halfway through the, the first act there. Yeah. Yeah, speaking for them literally, mm-hmm. and then the first, and then the first thing that the kids are allowed to say, as as voiced by not man and woman, are you know, man and woman say thank you grandparents for your gifts, and then the the kids say well thank you. So it's the, even their first line, and and even a lot of lines down the road are things that are explicitly given to them from their parents that then they just regurgitate at the appropriate moment. So, so the question of the kids having any sort of agency throughout any of this story is, is I think, a huge theme. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because of the moment where uh, the, the family fractures uh, around this fight at the grandparents' house and around the, the car sliding off the road. Uh, I mean, it seems as if the puppetry shifts at that point because when we're getting the reflections after this event after the monologues of the three children, suddenly the, it's the children who are speaking for the parents and moving them and manipulating them physically. Yeah. As well. And that's, that's something that I, I couldn't even think of how to include in, in necessarily the summary, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's absolutely is. And I intentionally think about the kids at that moment of that freeze frame, they step out from behind the puppets. They, they become separate from the puppets, and then they tell their story in their words. And then when they go back to the car, it, like you said, they are now doing the reverse of what happened at the beginning of the play. They are now saying, and woman said this, and the man said that, and they did that to, to the point where they're actually standing behind the actors playing man and woman and and making them move doing right. that human puppet thing so that the woman the man and woman are now ostensibly puppets with no voice and no action and that the children have sort of taken on that role and and I think what you see in each of their vignettes is that they've sadly also taken on a lot of the thoughts and actions of their parents as well it's kind of a pinocchio story except where pinocchio never really gets to be a real boy but then Geppetto starts turning into a puppet, you know? So it has nothing to do with the Pinocchio story. Basically, yeah. Okay, so in the way that it has nothing to do with it, yes, it is very much <laughs> a Pinocchio story. 
<laughs> yeah, so I, I now the the production of this that I saw, um, they had very interesting puppetry as well. And when you talk about the content of what the puppets are expected to do, I mean, not only do we have a puppet proposal, um, we've got uh, puppet on puppet sex, we've got puppet on human sex. Uh, there's all sorts of lewd puppet acts here, and a lot of you know racy discussions uh, from the erotica in the church yeah. to to the use of anti-Semitic slurs, amongst other things. So it's it's kind of Avenue Q esque of using the puppetry and the innocence, kind of the purity of that, to reflect how dark the, this play actually is. Yeah, I think that the puppets serve a couple of very useful functions. And the first is I think there's only so much you can get away with with live actors during live performance. You're not you're not going to really want to simulate either the you know, lesbian law student scene or Steven's back room scene with two actual actors. I mean that it gets pretty graphic in the descriptions. So you're either going to need to really dress it up and hide it behind some stuff or you use the puppets. You know, th that way the puppets you can be as an anatomically correct or vague as you need to be and it's still a puppet. So like you're not seeing something that is on its face super horrific. Mm -hmm. But then I think it also goes towards the idea of whether or not a character has agency. When somebody is being played like a puppet they do not have a choice in the matter. And it's and so it's almost I would say that it is the case that when the when the children are puppets, they do not have a choice as to what they say or what they will do. Hmm. And the same with the other puppets in in the scenario is they are there to be the the backboard against which we throw our personalities. Ooh, got definitely tag that one for the the quote of the week. I <laughs> okay. mean that that was that was so pretty. If we I must put that in the ads. <laughs> Which ads? Oh, the ones we haven't made yet. I forgot. The to abs? Are that. you working on your abs now? No, I'm still. I I don't do lower body. I'm I'm stick. You think the ab is in the lower body? It's it lower. So the than upper my body head. is everything chest and up. Yes. All right. I don't know how that doesn't no, make I sense. I understand your taste in women. <laughs> Just boobs and a face on a stick, huh? <laughs> I like that Q-tip look. <laughs> God damn. Um, I think you're exactly right. I I absolutely see your point about the non-puppets having more agency. And I think that this is exemplified by the gifts that they're given. Because it's only when receiving these gifts on Christmas that they start. To, the children start to show... Re any real agency or ownership of, of themselves and their own character. So I'd like to do just a quick recap of the gifts that, that everyone got. So the woman got a really nice vacuum, uh, courtesy of the man who said, it's because you're so good at cleaning up all our crap. <laughs> yeah, isn't that cute? What lovely 90s era sitcom bullshit that is. Uh, God, that one just gets gets to me. Anyway, so then Rebecca got the stained scarf and then the leather notebook. Claire got the gloves that were fingerless and then the bracelet with the house, the 
lock and key and the gun charms on it. And then Stephen got the hat that had been pierced and a soccer ball. Pierced by what, would you say? Well, I'm going to go by the testimony of the grandparents who said that it was small enough to be a 22 slug that had gone through. Or a stick. Or a stick. You have two options. Well, thank thank God for that. But Only one of them is, stuck. Yeah. Stick? Nope. Stuck? Uh, it's also important to know that the presence for the grandparents and the man are not remembered whatsoever. Yeah, specifically, I think the line is that the kids don't remember what the grandparent and the man got. Right. And that's that's where that sort of perspective starts to shift. Right. Where suddenly we're now telling the the story not from the perspective of man and woman, but of the children and and what they remembered versus what they didn't. Absolutely. And it's another great point about your the the, the rising of the agency of these characters. It also might be a small comment on the fact that generally, as a dad, you don't get very memorable gifts. Like like socks and ties tend to be the way of the world. Yeah. That's why he got himself Sheila. Ooh. <laughs> Sheila. Oh that's couldn't remember her name before. Yeah. Yeah, he got his own gift. And actually, yeah. he got a bunch of gifts for Sheila, too. Yes, he did. At the expense of the gas bill. Yeah. At the expense of basically the entire family's Everything, well-being. Yeah. Well, so it was shown off in the production that I had seen, and I don't know if it's explicit in the script, but the garbage presents that each of the kids have, they have them in their later vignettes. Rebecca has the scarf that she wraps around herself because she's so cold. Uh, Claire has the, the gloves, and without the fingertips, makes it easy to operate a firearm which is just fantastic. And then Steven has the hat when he is walking away from, I, I should say he has a hat and a scarf, etc. It's not specifically implied that they are the exact same items, but in some ways I saw these gifts as being metaphors for their later experiences. Oh, sure. Um, but I, I think even at a more explicit, it, it would make sense to do that because number one, you talk about metaphorically, we the gifts that they receive, they carry with them. And, and I think that it makes sense, it would make sense for a production to where the garbage gifts from the Depression era grandparents stay with the kids, whereas the material and materialistic gifts that they're given by their parents at the same time, they're nowhere in sight, and, and they're only, again, referenced metaphorically. And I think you know, something like Stephen's hat with, with what is claimed to be a gunshot hole in the back of it seems to sort of mark him for death. Yeah, it's it's a it's a brief foreboding of what is to come. It's like Chekhov, uh, who once said, "Hey, look, a gun." Yeah. Oh, I like this gun. Can I have it? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. It's a Christmas story. We're it doing is. Christmas references. <laughs> well, Chekhov so, Christmas. So I, I I love the way that that you've made this comparison that the. Kids got the material gifts, and then they got more or less metaphorical gifts. It yeah. wasn't just the items that they received that night that really carried with them throughout the rest of their lives as we see it through Stephen. 
Yeah, it it really feels like this. The reason this story is being told is because this night, all of the things that happened, the gifts they received, the things that were said, the the actions that they witnessed and took part in, these were these were what they carried with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, uh, I saw that one of the gifts that Rebecca got was learning from her father that it's better to be the one who cheats. Yeah, to to sort of be the aggressor as opposed to be to be like like her mother who was who was the victim of yes. of cheating. And Absolutely. then and then that carries through in her in her vignette of her having cheated and also having gotten pregnant um and it and presumably the baby doesn't belong to her boyfriend but instead to to R which stands for Rick in her diary which which she she has rights to be mad that he read her diary but also if you're going to go around cheating on someone maybe don't write it down at all especially in a place so obvious that when she was a child she knew that her diary was going to get observed she learned some different lessons well and and the thing that i think she got from that is is what she says specifically right before her flashback starts is she is saying I will never have children. Mm-hmm. As a kid in the back seat watching, as she's about to watch her dad hit her mom, her thought is, I will not have children. And she carries that through her life by also not caring for other people in, in her life. Um, for example, her emotional reaction when it's suggested that her baby could be named after her dead brother suggests a very complicated situation. And in Claire's monologue, we hear that she's the one that's been giving Stephen the AZT and was there at the end of his life. It's implied that Rebecca has taken this lesson so far as to completely avoid having anyone else depend on her. That that's really what she is phobic about. As much of this plays about the cycle of violence and the cycle of trauma... That's a pretty big one of I don't want anyone to have to count on me for anything because I'm just going to do what I want to do. And the thing is, another thing that she says specifically when when asked by her her offstage puppet boyfriend um, why she does stuff like this, she says, well, I don't know when you're out of town. I, I need somebody to notice me. And that that to me echoes back to. Of the three children at the beginning part of this play, Rebecca seems to get the least amount of total attention one way or the other. The diary was sort of neither here nor there. She doesn't say that she likes it. She doesn't say that she doesn't like it. All she knows is that her other siblings are going to invade that privacy. And she gets the feeling all the way through that she is like the least noticeable of the three children. And so mm-hmm. what she carries with her there is the need to be noticed. And and one of the things that's going to stop you from being noticed is taking care of your ailing brother. You know, He's going to steal some of that spotlight. Yeah. It's like a reverse Munchausen. Yeah. Uh, That's had, probably not an okay thing to say. No, I I don't <laughs> see why it wouldn't be. Either way. Yeah. Well, okay, so what what did Claire learn from her parents then? Claire's story is a tough one because she is clearly the favorite. And she knows it when she grows up as well. She she has a, a brief diatribe about like I've been a golden girl and she wasn't B. Arthur. She wasn't Betty White, so I don't know which one she was. 
Yeah. Those are the only two names I know. Yeah, I haven't watched the reruns. Sophia Loren? No, no, that's not the one. No, but the old one is named Sophia <laughs> in the show. The old one. Like there are young ones and golden girls. <laughs> we got off the rails here. The car is well, sliding But Andy, the I do want to thank you for being a friend. So she says she's been a golden girl and she will never be again and that she's been able to bed other golden girls. So she knows what it's like to be someone's favorite. And she also knows what it's like to to have somebody who is everyone's favorite. But, yeah, it, it does feel like one of the things that she brought with her was to never to never be the focus of attention. Almost the inverse of Rebecca is to never desire to be that golden girl again. And that that's more or less what she says. It's why she stands on the street looking up at her girlfriend who left their apartment to go to go have sex while simultaneously studying tort law, which you know, kudos to them being able to do both at the same time. I mean, you've never read tort law. <laughs> Does it get exciting? But yeah, what what Claire is doing is she's standing down on the street and looking up and saying, well, if she just looks down at me in a certain way or if she just notices uh, or if she'll answer the intercom or it, all these different things that's like if if only she will give me that little bit of letting me know she's still mine, then I can forgive all of this and I can go on with my life um, with her. And she doesn't get any of that and is and is bargaining for it up until the point where she gets so, so downtrodden that she decides to end her own life. So in some ways, Rebecca learned be the aggressor and Claire learned be anything but the aggressor. So like so passive that she was wishing for her lover to return to her instead of doing anything like her siblings did. Right. Well, and it feels like in a lot of ways these kids are both trying to rebel against what they saw their parents do, but almost inevitably recreating it as well. You know, Rebecca knows, you know, but by the end of the play, you know that they know about his infidelity because they're speaking about it as as omnisciently as man and woman were at the beginning. So they know about father's infidelity, and yet Rebecca was still, you know, I, would, I don't know if I'd say happy to be unfaithful, but was still unfaithful, so went after that. And Claire, knowing that her mother s- sat there for years saying nothing and just hoping that someday her husband would figure it the fuck out, she's doing the same thing down there on that street. Absolutely. Well, so then Stephen is... Is a place to tread, I think, a bit more carefully in in discussing what he learned. There, there is a discussion to be had about what Stephen said right before his his vignette, which was, "I will never hit a woman." Like he he saw the example, as you were just saying, he saw the example of his dad and tried. In we could surmise try to be as unlike his dad as possible. Now, granted, earlier in the story, his dad did say, referenced his son um, getting his pansy ass to the car. So, obviously, they knew that he was gay or at least effeminate. And I don't know if it would cheapen the metaphor to say that Stephen said, I will never hit a woman like that, so I'll be gay. Because, obviously, that's not it. 
But I think that's the easy way to look at that metaphor. Yeah, well, and obviously he was already aware of his sexuality. What are other things he's thinking as he's sitting in the back seat wondering if he was the cause of this fight? He's like, is it because I look at boys? He is he is thinking about, like, if, have I done something wrong to cause this? Um, but to me, it feels a little bit more like that sort of idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy is that Stephen sees how his dad reacts to him and he may not he may not fully be able to to realize his sexuality at that at that young age but it is very easy in 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 a world where you can see a lot of of tropes play out over and over it sometimes becomes very easy to experience generally something negative and and you know in this case scenario of being my dad doesn't love me because of who i am mm-hmm. because of how i identify sexually it is really easy to find a piece of media in which what that stereotypically leads to is is the the gay man becoming as outwardly sexual as as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, my dad wouldn't have liked this, so I'm going to turn it up to 11, and I'm going to have as much fun as I want with whoever I want and go crazy. And, you know, to me, that's that also echoes the idea of this the floating world. The idea of the floating world it, from, from the Japanese concept is almost sort of like a hedonism of of taking joy in in eating and consuming mm. and and in the sins of the flesh if you will as much as possible mm-hmm. um and so i think it's really easy in, in any of those scenarios to to experience a trauma and say well you know the, the worst thing that i could possibly do if your dad doesn't seem to love you because of how you identify sexually. Well, the worst thing that you could do would be to take that and steer directly into it and make that your identity is mm-hmm. you are everything he was afraid that you would be. And whether or not he chose to or that was just what he was destined to be, I don't know if it matters. Yeah. It feels like in this moment, this... This is the story that Stephen is telling because this is when he became who he was going to be. Yes. And, and if we can make this discussion our inappropriate reference, reference of, of the week. week. Yeah. So our IROTW is this idea from plenty of time traveler stories, particularly one from one of my favorite series, Doctor Who. Uh, there are several times where Doctor Who and his kooky companions are blasting around through time and space, and they come across something that they want to change. Something like, hey, let's kill Hitler, or let's stop the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and I'm really sorry that I put those in the same sentence. Uh, these are referred to as fixed points in time. Actions or events that have had such reverberating consequences that entire time streams depend on them remaining exactly as they were. So it's something that cannot be changed. It will always have happened and will always have been happening. I love future past tenses. They're the bestest. They're great. 
So this idea of the fixed point in time seems to resonate within this play as well. That this night, this fight with between the parents and the grandparents, the actions on the ride home, the gifts themselves, they all constitute a fixed point in time for these characters. How this is the moment that everything changed for them. That that any other, the possibilities of what could have happened with their lives were solidified on this one moment. Yeah, and and the thing that it makes me think about, which is also, which is not quite a time travel thing, um, but it's from an episode of Community, uh, which which was a great series, sadly canceled, but it did get to six series. And a movie? Almost a movie. Oh. Still no movie. Um, but So there's an episode in season three called Remedial Chaos Theory, and I think it's, a lot of people's favorite episode of this show. And basically what it is, is everybody's hanging out around, uh, you know, sort of doing a housewarming in Troy and Abed's new apartment. And someone's got to go down and get the pizza. And so Jeff grabs a die and, and rolls it and says, okay, whoever comes up, you know, on your number, you go get the pizza. And so it goes through all six possibilities of that die landing, including one in which some absurd combination of shit happens to where when Troy comes back with the pizza, half the apartment is on fire. Someone has been shot. There's a creepy ass gnome and it's just like everything has gone downhill. And it's this, it's probably the shortest of all the, the little pieces of the six. Um, and yet is like the most absurdly and hilarious and it's played off at the at until the end of the episode where they refer to that as the darkest timeline that they flash back to what if everybody from that timeline lived and, you know jeff is missing an arm because he got shot um <laughs> and and like all this weird crap happens and they refer to it as the darkest timeline which has become sort of a cultural touchstone mm-hmm. of the darkest timeline you know because because we are currently living it yes g- given our virus and presidential situation and many it's, other things, yeah. but yeah, um, but and so and even it even sort of weaves Murder through the rest hornets. of the series where it keeps coming back there. But so that's what it felt like to me was this was that roll of the die, and that these were the events that led up to Stephen and his and his siblings living through their darkest timeline. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I had only just now realized that all of life's events can really be uh, a D and D skill check. It's very exciting and freeing, honestly. Um, but, okay, well, we're, we're wrapping up the episode here. I really quickly need to go mix myself a creatine smoothie. It's creatine with a little bit of water and then more creatine. Uh, it, it, it takes, like, 30 seconds or so. So while I'm doing that, I have just a quick question for you. Because this was such a, a, a turning point for the characters in this play, why do you believe that more porn should be shown at church? <laughs> well i i think that i have been misquoted here um what i what i really meant to say was that more churches should be used in the filming of porn (laughs) but i don't i maybe that didn't come across right because i was i was just thinking more church more churches more porn and also it is because, yes, absolutely, the most important thing in your life, bigger than God, bigger than Christmas, bigger than your parents, is learning who you are sexually and gratifying yourself in whatever way you find most appropriate or least appropriate, if that's what you're into, as much as humanly possible. Yes. 
and I don't think that I've minced words at all. Well, good. Well, uh, I want to thank you so much for that response. Uh, it has gotten me very excited. You know, you've aroused my attention, and uh, I, and your creatine. I might start thinking about going back to church. The Drinking church- that activated creatine, there- aren't you? <laughs> There you go. Well, Dylan, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will see you on the next pod. Goodbye. Minutes to Curtain is a project of the Miscreant Theater Collective, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. This was written and produced by Dylan McDonald and Andy Rogers and directed by Aaron Slemak and sometimes Dylan McDonald. 